Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hi, this is Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you leader to leader about something important. As leaders, especially at times of rapid change and uncertainty, it's easy to live and act from a place of fear. If we're not careful, that fear can paralyze us and keep us from effectively leading at work, at home, and in every relationship. But that doesn't have to be the case. My friend Ben Straub, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions, a growth architecture firm that helps leaders and organizations accelerate revenue and maximize impact through data-driven strategies, has just released a great new resource for leaders. It's called Eight Things Leaders Say When They Fear Change and How to Confront Those Fears. This five-page resource gives you eight of the most frequent responses we as leaders have when we experience fear and the specific steps and language that you can use to move beyond fear to action. Click the link in the episode show notes to get this resource today. You'll be a better leader tomorrow because of it. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, and I'm really excited for this conversation today with Jamie Trussell, the Chief Development Officer at Adult and Teen Challenge USA. We're going to talk all things leadership today. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, really excited to have this conversation with you. But before we get into the questions, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about the organization that you're with. Well, I came to Adult and Teen Challenge just over a year ago as their Chief Development Officer, Vice President of Marketing and Communications, which is fun because any one of those could have been a full-time job. (laughs) I am enjoying learning on the job uh, at the ministry. We are an addiction recovery ministry with locations in every state in the United States and locations around the world. So 1,400 total around the world just about 250 in North America. We do residential treatment primarily, though we have a whole array of services to support families who are struggling to find freedom from addiction. Wow, and how long have you been in the nonprofit space yourself? Uh, I myself have been a fundraiser for over 15 years. So started in higher education, moved to international relief industry, and then again, just came to addiction relief. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's get into this. So, you know, really want to get your perspective on on leadership. And, and obviously, you know, this is early June when we're recording this conversation. So there's been a lot going on that has required pretty significant leadership over the last couple of months with the COVID crisis, with what's gone on with race relations across the country. So I think it's an important topic for us to discuss right now. And I'm, I'm eager to get your, your point of view. I think first, Let's talk about your own personal leadership journey. I, I'm, I'm really curious and interested to know, you know, sort of how you found yourself in a leadership role. Is this something that you designed your career around? Did you just sort of wake up one day and go, wow, I'm kind of, I, I'm now responsible for leading things. Like, what did that journey look like for you? Sure. Um, So I think as most fundraisers do, I don't think you set out to do that in your life. It's one of those careers that you kind of find yourself drawn to or or thrust into, depending on uh, circumstances. But I've met very few small children who say, I want to grow up and raise money for a living. Uh, And I was similar. I wanted to be a senator. That was my goal. And so it's funny that you ask, you know, how do you find yourself uh, drawn into leadership? And I would say from being, you know, I'm a firstborn child and from a very young age, I wanted to make things happen. 
I constantly wanted to have my opinion heard. And uh, I know that isn't always a flattering concept in a small girl, but, you know, bossy pants. When I read that book, I was like, yes, yes, I relate to this. <laughs> so from a very early age, I wanted to be moving things and making things happen. And, you know, I'm always the one to summarize leadership and it's not glamorous, but there's always someone who has to start the buffet line, right? You go to a cookout, <laughs> everyone's hesitant to start. I'm like, bring it on. That is my, this is what I was given for. So yeah, I, that's just who I am. And I've never tried to hide that. And I was fortunate to grow up in a family in a community where that was totally embraced. It was totally okay to be the one who wanted to get things going. And how have you found that sort of innate drive accepted or not in the workplace? Like what, what, what has that experience been for you? Oh, that's a great question. So working in ministry too, there are some gender dynamics that can be at play. Sure. Um, and one of the beautiful things, I was an anthropology major. I was also a communications major. And I'm proof that you can get a paying job with both of those, <laughs> which my professors are glad to hear, I'm certain. But one of the things you learn in that is culture is important and how you relate to people of different backgrounds is important. And man, what a timely subject right now. Um, it's important not to compromise who you are, but to also be sensitive to backgrounds and upbringings and you know, inherent nuances that are not your own. And so as I have described myself as an aggressive leader, that isn't always well perceived, particularly coming from a young female uh, background. And growing up in a very conservative uh, faith tradition, so grew up Southern Baptist, I now work for the Assemblies of God, that is sometimes challenging for folks around me because it is not uh, maybe typical. So I have worked really hard, certainly not to make myself smaller or less of who I am, but to be sensitive to how I am coming across. And that can be really challenging sometimes. Sometimes my A game is not sensitive enough. And there have been specific cases where I have overstepped and uh, made things harder than it needs to be um, because I am not able to communicate in a way that can be heard the way I want it to be heard. It is something that I have had to be conscious about my whole life. And as I have matured, it has become easier. It, I still get caught off guard now and then, but it has been wonderful to find your tribe. You know, the folks who appreciate who you are and the background that you come from and to be a, have to be a little less guarded with all of those things. So um, my, my current boss right now at Teen Challenge, you know, he again came from a very conservative background, but he is also, you do you and use your gifts. And, you know, for me, that is awesome. I'm off to the races and that has become such a, not a part of my job that I'm so grateful for that every day. So that's really interesting to me. I've worked with ministries for 20 years now and it's a little more rare than, than I think people realize to have a C-suite leader, particularly a, a man in a ministry organization that's willing to sort of take those handcuffs off, if you will. Do you think, um, is that some, like an intentional approach that he has or just kind of, that's the cloth he's cut from? 
I honestly think that's the cloth he, he's cut from. I, I know his extended family and uh, have had the chance to meet his mom, and she is a go-getter. And <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, he's just made that way. And before ministry, he worked in higher education and also for a, a national company. Okay. And so, you know, that space is really quite different. The culture is just different when you work for a multinational corporation. And so for him, you know, I hate when people say we're just blind to it because that's not really true. I mean, even if you, you are behaving as though you're blind to it, you still have those things inside you that you may or may not be able to see. Um, So I think there's always going to be a level of intentionality, but I will tell you, I have never been made to feel that that is a barrier to, uh, what I need to do and what I need to accomplish or the standards that I'm held to in this role. It, it awesome. is beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about values. I'm, I'm curious to know what you feel are the most important values that you can display as a leader to your team. This one is particularly fresh for me right now. I think everyone says integrity and that goes without saying, but I think within fundraising, it, it goes a little deeper. It's credibility. You have to say what you mean and mean what you say and be able to follow through on it. For me that, you know, I I talk a lot about the why of fundraising because um, we're, we're hoping to hire another fundraiser in our office and, you know, we're writing the job description and you can overanalyze those as much as you want. (laughs) Honestly, the only two things I care about are why do you want to raise money for adult and teen challenge? And can you drum up a relationship out of thin air? Because if you answer why, because it is the most important thing you could be supporting right now, I know you will do all the right things. I sure. know it. And for me, the why is, you know, I'm, I'm a person of faith and I've been given gifts and I feel called to use those gifts to build the kingdom. That's it. And from that integrity and follow through and dedication and diligence, all of that comes from that. So I think all of those leadership qualities come to the right motivation at the core. Talk to us a little bit about what motivates you and excites you as a leader. I love professional development. I, first of all, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm always signing up. I just signed up for a uh, certification class to be a mental health coach. And it's not anything I thought I would be interested in, but it was they did this amazing, you know, COVID quarantine deal where you can get this amazing training for a, a really excellent price. And I'm like, sign me up. I would love that. And it's, it's a pretty intense course, but I love it. So knowing that about myself, that I will never know everything I need to know, and that I need to constantly keep growing, I get excited about sharing what I do know with others. So in training other folks, in helping them, uh, you know, grow their career, one of my first professional positions was a scholarship coordinator at a, at a state university. And I had a small staff, about five folks, but some of those folks had, they were lifers, right? They had been in the same role for 25 plus years. And I remember getting, at first I was like, I, I just... That has never been how I just want to go the next challenge, right? I'm always about the next challenge. Like, what do I need to grow and do? And it was really hard for me to understand how they were so content in the same role. In over the, you know, the three or four years there, I they got, I wouldn't say they got discontent, but they 
got excited about taking, like I would send him to classes. I was like, go learn this. I want to, you know, at a university, you have so much opportunity to learn and grow. For sure. It was really awesome. And that sounds terrible, but one of my happiest days is when one of my, my folks got a better job. She got a great job. And I was like, this is what I was working on. I mean, this is so good. So yeah, I, I really enjoy other people's success. I, I, I think as much as my own, it is fun for me to see, you know, if I could just help a little bit light a spark, I just feel like a lot of folks, their leaders or their bosses feel like they own them or they've got this ownership of like, you are here to help me. And I've never felt like that. I felt like as a supervisor, my job is to help you. Tell me where the obstacles are. I'm going to be the bulldozer. I'm going to get them out of your way. And whatever your goals are, those are my goals. I agree with you. So a couple of thoughts on it. First of all, I think we, we, you know, might be long lost siblings because it sounds like we're wired exactly the same way. Some of my, my favorite experiences in the last couple of years, I have a former employee who landed a role as a, an, an equity stakeholder and, and vice president in an organization. And another one who became a chief development officer at a, at a fairly large healthcare institution. And for me, like those were the two most exciting things in the last couple of years. Where I'm like, awesome. You know, the, whatever I did to pour into those people years ago, you know, it paid off and, and they've continued to grow from there. And, and, and I am also always shocked when I hear someone say something like, well, you know, we, we need these people to stay in these roles for the next five years. And, and, you know, I'm always thinking like, well, I wouldn't want to do that. It's insane to think that you want someone not to grow and not to develop and for no other reason than like, if, if they're not capable of moving to the next role, then they're probably also not capable of delivering the value that you need in your organization, you know? I, I do think that's a huge issue. I, that came to pass one time when I saw a person get recruited to another opportunity and their supervisor got so mad and almost vindictive that I was like, what universe is this? It's yeah. just a totally alien concept to me. And I'm glad to hear that I'm not alone. Yeah, no, not at all. So let's talk about challenge for a second. Oftentimes you get the question like, what's your biggest failure? I don't want to even go there. I want to know what's the biggest challenge you've ever faced. And I want to know what you learned about yourself in that process. Mm, The biggest challenge. Gosh, I feel like there have been a lot of challenges. So it's hard to pick the biggest (laughs) challenge. (laughs) I will tell uh, one of the define, I'll say probably the most defining challenge. Again, as a very young professional, I was brought into a position of being overseeing donor-funded scholarships. So uh, for those of us in fundraising, we know, you know, you work with a donor, they have a lot of ideas, and then you get charged with making it work, right? Um, Unfortunately, at the university where I was working, the development office did not talk to the financial aid office. So those two processes were happening completely separate from one another. The donor would have a beautiful spirit and heart and goal And then the financial aid office may not ever have been paying any attention to those (laughs) desires. And and neither were happening with regards to federal law, which was, you know, challenging at that time too. So it was my job to come in as scholarship coordinator and reconcile those two camps. So the development officers needed to work with the financial aid officers to make sure that the donor's wishes really did happen exactly the way and in accordance with all the rules and regulations of higher ed. And uh, I was not prepared for the pushback I would get 
for trying to do the right thing. Nobody in the world would say it is totally okay to ignore donor wishes. And nobody in the world would say it is totally okay to ignore the federal government. So in theory, both of those camps should have been on the exact same page. In practice, we've always done it this way, oh. is entrenched to a level I was unprepared for. I, again, a very young professional, trying my best to do a good job, saw some of the most unprofessional behavior from you know people who were in positions of great authority directed at me. It became very personal, and it, it blew my mind. I, I just, I couldn't understand. And what I realized, and this is an analogy that has served me well today, is just because you're right doesn't mean you're going to be able to get it done the way you thought. <laughs> Being right isn't enough. It is almost never enough. So I, I had this picture in my head of two rocks clashing each other, banging together. And all that was happening with, was the rocks were getting worn down. And then another image of water going around because we had to go around the rock, right? So we had to, I had to step back, make some baby steps, do a lot of relationship building, a lot of trust gaining because they didn't know who I was. They didn't know that what I was saying was accurate. They just knew I was changing everything they loved. Mm -hmm. And so that was really hard and painful. And of course, again, as a very young professional, I mean, I was hated and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, hated <laughs> for just doing my job. And years later, cause it all, we got through it. It all worked out. It, it, again, it wasn't perfect, but we got through it. Years later, I had a um, director of one of the schools say, you know, I really did not like you at all. But I understand now, years later, why you were doing the things you were doing, and I appreciate you for it. Wow. And I, that is the best compliment I've ever gotten in my life. Yeah, for sure. Isn't it insane, the level of bureaucracy that you face sometimes? And this, this idea of, like, like you said, you know, we've always done it this way. That resistance to change is so strong. And I, I mean, I, I've worked inside nonprofits, I've worked in Congress, and I've worked as, as a consultant. And I, I feel like it's strong everywhere, but it seems to be magnified in our sector. Yeah, I think, yes, definitely. There, it, because we, we deal with feelings and convictions. Mm, and that's people, a good point. Without your convictions, I mean, facts are meaningless, right? Huh. That, <laughs> that's just the space in which we work. So yeah, sometimes working with those trenches is much harder. Yeah. And innovation on a different level. That's, that's a really good point. I want to go back. So you, you mentioned earlier that you're, you know, you're a lifelong learner and you're always looking to learn something new. I, I still, at some point, not in this conversation, but I want to understand how, as a fundraiser, you decided, hey, I want to take a course in mental health coaching. But that, we'll, we'll get to that later. But I, I do want to know, what's the most valuable piece of leadership advice you ever received and who gave it to you? Oh, that's, oh, Okay. That's a great question. I love it. Um, uh, you get a lot of advice uh, as you go through your career and some of it really sticks and some of it 
you know, really shapes you. And one piece that shaped me, I had written an op-ed and I hesitate to even mention it because I don't want anyone looking it up because I was really young and stupid when I wrote it. <laughs> so we, we will not link to it in the show notes. Really, do not ever go there. I'm gonna, I've changed my name since then, so it's fine. But I wrote it and it created some controversy because, you know, we live in a fairly small community and it was a very bold, you know, with all the arrogance a 27-year-old can muster, it was a very bold and aggressive op-ed. And I wasn't prepared for the backlash for that either. I don't know why. I just wasn't. And um, a, a dear friend who is a donor and who had, you know, had just really kind of taken me under his wing. He, he was a serial entrepreneur and just really, a, just a really cool person. He gave me some great advice. He said, you know, and it, it's a hard truth, so I even hesitate to share it, but it was, you're, don't believe all your press, basically. <laughs> he said, look, you're not as great as some people are going to tell you, and you're not as terrible as people are going to tell you either. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, and just don't buy into the hype. Yeah, that's, that's so important for us. It yeah. is so important. And then after he gave that to me, and I, I, you know, we've got through that situation, but it's so true. You know, you think you get invited to be on the board because they think you're a really neat person. And then you realize you have the right job and you have the right demographic. And it's not all about you. There are so <laughs> many other things that go into it. You just have to have a really good personal sense of who you are. And you cannot take those external voices to define who you are. And that's what it meant for me. And boy, that has been the most useful, hands down advice I have ever received. That's really good, actually. So let's let's talk a little bit about applying some of that to to your current role and, and the, the team that you lead right now. One of the things that I find most challenging, and I think a lot of leaders do, is getting really candid feedback mm -hmm. about how you're doing your work, how you're leading, particularly when you know, most of the people that are likely to experience you on a daily basis are, are not peers, but they're people that either report to you or they're, you know, quote unquote, below you on a, on a staffing chart. What do you do to make sure that you maintain kind of an open posture and, and create space for people to give candid feedback and not fear that, you know, they, there'll be retribution or, or anything like that? What, what, what's your approach to that? Ooh, I like this question as well. One of the challenges in leadership is everyone thinks they're self-aware. Everyone <laughs> thinks I mean, it's true. I actually had someone ask, how self-aware do you think you are? And I was like, well, duh, everyone <laughs> thinks they're self-aware. That's why there's a problem. Uh, for me, it has, you know, you have to invite the feedback and you have to mean it. And I think changed behavior is the best indicator that you really are someone who wants to hear it and can, can hear it. There are folks who invite it, but then can't hear it. And the only way you know that you are breaking through that is obviously don't be a jerk and <laughs> don't punish people <laughs> for telling you the truth. I once read somewhere, uh, you know, a, a leader who can't listen will find themselves surrounded by people with nothing to say. And it's true because they see that behavior. However, if you are coachable, which again, that was one of the greatest compliments I was ever given was um, Cheryl Burnett, who is in a Missouri Hall of Fame sports Hall of Fame uh, coach, retired from the university where I work, said, you know what I love about you? You're coachable. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a huge compliment to me because I really do want to hear the ugly along with the praise. I mean, I don't really want to hear the ugly. Nobody wants to hear the right. ugly. But I am constantly asking and listening for things I could do better. And so number one, invite it. And if you're not getting it, realize that's a problem. Because it doesn't mean you're awesome. I mean, it's again to what I said earlier. Don't believe your own press. It, just because they're not saying it doesn't mean they're not thinking it. Right. And I it must means, be great because nobody's complaining. Really? Ta-da. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, the, one of the secret tricks of the trade in fundraising, I think, is being able to hear what isn't being said. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what isn't being said is more important than what is being said. So you have to encourage checks all the time. And I love to ask my folks, what can I do better? What can I help you with? How do you need me to communicate with you? How do you want me to set goals for you? How do you want me to check in? And you know, that, that allows them to give that little critique without making it confrontational. Cause I will tell you, my employees right now are very non-confrontational. They are, <laughs> they hate having hard conversations. They just, I mean, they're ministry minded. Sounds like a ministry, ministry they, organization. Yes. yes. <laughs> they love people and they would never say anything mean ever. It would break their hearts. And yet I, again, I'm a very direct person and I, 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 keep pushing them on that. I was like, okay, so here's my perception. I don't think I'm very good at this. Would you agree with that? And that has given them an opportunity to say, oh no, I think you're, I mean, most of the time they're like, no, no, you're fine. <laughs> but I'm like, no, seriously, don't you think you would be better at this? If you were going to do this, how would you do it? So I try to give them the power to critique me without being directly confrontational. You, you got to, and again, that's, you meet people where they are. So not all of my people need that. I have one who will tell me exactly what she thinks, but <laughs> there are some that you need to build in catches because again, it's all about relativism. Just because what works for you does not mean what works for them. And you need to be able to communicate in a way that they can hear and they can feel comfortable with. So be innovative and find tools that work for them to give you that feedback because you need it. You especially if you think you don't need it. That's when you really need. Absolutely. Okay, so you've already talked a little bit about this earlier, but I, I want to hone in on navigating change, right? Mm -hmm. Because for so many organizations, particularly right now, you're like, everything's changing. Right? You know, mm -hmm. everything we thought was normal 10 weeks ago got upended and it's sort of still, you know, crazy and, and in the air. So, I'm curious to know whether it's a crisis situation like this COVID thing, or maybe, you know, when you're bringing a new initiative online or, or significantly changing something in the organization, uh, mm -hmm. kind of back to your, this is how we've always done it kind of thing. What are some things that you do to make sure that your team and the organization uh, remained aligned around whatever the change initiative is? And how mm -hmm. do you keep people motivated during the significant change process. Yeah, man, if we had this figured out, we could write some more books, right? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so uh, just some things that I know that we do in our, again, one of the things I have found is it's hard to be a pioneer and it's hard to go first because sometimes you get out there and you look behind you and nobody is following. So in Africa, they have a proverb that says, if you wanna go fast, go alone. 
if you want to go far, go together. And I have found that if you are trying to institutionalize change or you are trying to even adapt on a small level, you have to have buy-in. There are so many leaders who are like, because I said so, we're going to do it. And people will do it, but they will do it half-heartedly and reluctantly and subversively, which is worse than if they were not doing it at all. So I think in instituting change, you give everybody a seat at the table. You make it everybody's prerogative. So again, I come back to the why. Um, in ministry, we have, I mean, again, in fundraising, you have to change, you have to adapt. Things, things change all the time. You meet donors where they are. Um, I you know, was so shocked the first time I asked for a gift by text. That blew my mind because it felt wrong to me on so many levels. But this donor was like super busy and like we could never get together, but they would text. So that worked for me. But boy, that was a huge change. Did you close it, that gift? I did close that nice. gift. It was amazing. I was like, I want to screenshot this and frame it. <laughs> beautiful. It was beautiful. Uh, it wasn't a huge ask, but it was just a fact. It seemed so personal. But to that end, if you tell me why we need to get there. So if you show me the why, people will come alongside that why and they will make the changes and they will figure out how to make the changes if they believe in the why. If you give them a what without a why, that is hard going. And I don't know that you'll ever get there where you need to. So that is one of the way that I think changes. And you know, when you start talking about this question, it reminded me of that quote about Wayne Gretzky that said, you know, he was a great player, not because he knew where the puck was, but he knew where the puck was going. Hmm. And in, again, in ministry, fundraising, nonprofit work, we are under the tyranny of the urgent and everything is on fire all the time. And we are so reactive. And you know, some of us have gotten really good at being reactive, you know, 24 hours and you get a thank you note. That's still reactive fundraising. I think what will define our industry is our ability to see where the puck is going. So what are people going to need as a result of the COVID-19 crisis? What are people going to need uh, as a result of the mental health crisis that is coming and the substance abuse crisis that is coming? Because I'll tell you, the writing is on the wall. You can't have situations of high stress and turmoil without knowing in six months, suicide rates are going to go up. It happens in tornadoes. It happened in the last recession. That's the way it is. So let's get ahead of that crisis. And we've just got to create space for us to start looking further down the road because right now we are all so busy. I don't know a single nonprofit that says, I have too many employees. We don't have enough work to do. <laughs> um, we have got to give them space to not only do the day-to-day -day that has to be done, but to be preparing for, you know, to quote, winter is coming. <laughs> yeah no that's that's really insightful thank you for that so one more question for you and then i'll let you go for the day obviously you, you work for a large organization you all are doing really essential and critical work across the country and across the globe so i got to imagine that you're really busy how do you as a leader carve out time to recharge and recalibrate and what does that process look like for you mm. Well, I don't think I do it well. I'll just be candid there because uh, development is a 24-7 gig. It just is. You're always on. 
and you are such a representative, at least that's how I fundraise. You are such a representative of the ministry or the nonprofit that you work for that, you know, if that donor calls you at 7.30 on Sunday morning, you're going to answer the call. You just are because that you're doing life together with them. That's what authentic development is. I do. I am really good about throwing my phone on the counter or in my purse and going outside. And, and in fact, for my 40th birthday, we did two weeks on the Appalachian Trail as a family. And it was the best thing ever because nobody needed me. I had, every, I mean, my kids were with me, so they did need me, but I had everything I needed on my, pat, on my back and we were out in nature and it was glorious. And just seeing the pictures of myself during that time, I looked like a different human. Not only because I was filthy dirty, but <laughs> just because I was smiling and you could just see the tension was gone because I was fully present and with just my family. And there was, there was no email to return for two weeks and it was glorious. So I have become better about Friday night and I've told my boss, like I might see the email, but unless it's urgent. I'm not going to respond to it until Monday morning. And it, it's frustrating sometimes because, you know, he'll try to call me and I'm like, I'm sorry, my phone was, I didn't even know where my phone was when you tried to call because this is our time. And I have to be super intentional about that or I will, you know, get up at three in the morning and start working on emails, which is something I do quite regularly. <laughs> so I just, I think, I think we all know it's important giving ourselves the space to do that sometimes gets pushed down the priority list. But I would tell as someone who has gone through periods of burnout, you have to do it. You can't pour from an empty cup and you are no good to your ministry or your donors. If you are deplete. Amen. Jamie, this has been a really uh, enjoyable and insightful conversation. Thank you for joining me today. I am so glad to know you and thank you for the time. Yeah, likewise. And tell me this, if somebody wants to connect with you, wants to learn more about Adult and Teen Challenge, like what's the best way for people to reach you? Absolutely. Email. And uh, it is Jamie T at adult. Actually, sorry. It's Jamie T at teenchallengeusa.org. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.